open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. What we're going to do today is we're going to focus on just two verses this morning because these two verses really are the centerpiece, the heart, the thesis of this entire uh, book, the entire book of Romans. Uh, so open up your Bibles there as we ask God to change us through the reading of his word. Jesus, Father God, we are so grateful for who you are to our community, who you are to our world, what you've done for us. Right now, we just come before you humbly, asking, Father God, that you would empty our cups, Father God, that we would not approach this passage full of what we already know, God, that we would not approach the book of Romans already full of the things that we already know to be true, God, but Lord, that we would be able to, something new would come out at, the, at us from this passage, Father God, Lord, that we would read this to be changed by it, Father God, not to just be affirmed in the things that we already believe, Father God, but that we would see you in a new light today for, through this word. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would speak through me, that everything you'd have me to say, I would say, and let everything else fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, the heart of the entire book of Romans is found in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And if you read what comes next week without reading Romans 1, 16 and 17 and without having a grasp and an understanding on Romans 1, 16 and 17, you are going to be confused. You are going to run the risk of thinking that the entire book is law that the entire book is legalistic, it's oppressive, it's all the things that people tend to believe that the book of Romans is, when in fact it's not at all. The book of Romans is about the only hope that exists in our otherwise hopeless world, and that hope is only, only found in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ. So let's read it as we go there. It's Romans 1, 16 and 17. Let's do four. I am not ashamed. This is the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We talked about this last week. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God, remember this phrase, the righteousness of God, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So how did everybody fare this week in the polar vortex? You guys do okay? You guys, you guys did awesome? That's awesome. You're blessed and highly favored. The kids had a snow day uh, almost every single day this week. It was just crazy, but the beginning, on, on, by Tuesday, for those of you who remember, I'm sure you all remember because it was four days ago, but by Tuesday, it was too cold to even go outside, but on Monday, the kids had off of school anyway. I think the school kind of regretted canceling because it wasn't that bad on Monday, and the kids all, like, were, they, they didn't have school, and, uh, and so they played outside. Uh, and they were playing outside, and I, I remember the kids were outside, and I was just inside, and I looked out the back window, and I saw Fiona, and we have this, like, this is like a really ghetto, we're going to tear it down, like, uh, stairway to our house, and she, like, home alone style is sledding down the stairway. 
Uh, and she, we actually have like, we actually have, this is like a big tarp on it uh, that's really slippery. And she's just sliding down that thing. And when I would walk on that tarp, I always would slip. It was really, really slippery. But she didn't care. She just went on it. In some instances, actually, she actually would smash into the fence and like fall off the sled. So she just, if she gets going fast enough, she just, whew, and then she hit the fence. It's like, I don't know, that, that's probably not the best parenting, but I, I let her do it because that's like, man, that's really fun. I don't know. Anyway, did anybody else's, I say else's because mine did, did anybody else's pipes freeze? Oh, wow. More, more than I thought. More, more hands than I thought went up. On Thursday morning. So earlier that week, our hot water uh, in the kitchen froze. But uh, Thursday morning, when it got just frigid, I woke up to my daughter, Brooklyn, saying, Daddy, the water doesn't work. The water, like, she went to the bathroom and she was trying to wash her hands and there's no water coming out. And she's like, the water doesn't work. And that was not surprising to me because um, I have one of those Nest things, uh, the thermostats, where I can watch on my phone the temperature of our house. And our house is very, very old and there's still certain spots that don't have walls. And it actually did really good keeping up with the heat. Uh, and when we were like at zero degrees, two degrees, even negative two degrees. But once we got to about like negative 11 windshield negative like 90 like when we got about there the the house didn't really keep up very well so I that night the night before they froze I was looking at my nest thermostat and I realized it was only getting to 52. Now I, I was a good citizen like all of you I'm sure I turned it to 65 when the when the alarm came on that said everybody turn your furnace to 65 because there's no gas left and we're all going to freeze um so but it didn't matter because mine was only going to 52 anyway. Now, Dawn, conveniently, was not home all week. Uh, she's doing her master's, uh, uh, she's getting a master's degree uh, in theology, and she was in uh, Grand Rapids uh, all week. And since the house had frozen, uh, and the kids were not in school, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go spend a couple days with Dawn. So I, my parents very graciously allowed, they were like, you can't stay in the frozen house uh, we'll come pick up the kids. I said, how about this? I'll drop the kids off at your house. So they allowed me to drop the kids at the house uh, for a night. And then I actually went to Grand Rapids uh, and saw Dawn at her school. And I would literally wait outside of her classroom like for breaks. Like, she had these little breaks and like, uh, and like every hour she had a break. And so I'd wait outside the classroom until she came out. And then we'd spend like 10 minutes together. It, it was, I felt like we were like dating again because when, when we were younger, uh, she used to go to film school in Chicago and I would sometimes drive to Chicago and surprise her. And I would surprise her as she's coming out of class and she'd be like, what are you doing here? And it would be just beautiful and amazing and romantic and then we'd hang out. Uh, and so anyway, I, I felt like that again. Like I, sometimes you just, sometimes when life gets going on, you need little things like that to just remind yourself of like, man, I love this person. This is amazing. Life is amazing. It was just one of those refreshing times where I just really felt really... I don't know, I felt really whole this week, just spending time with her doing that at, at, at her school, pretending like I was a student or something. I, I, I didn't, I, actually, they let me sit down on one of the classes too. That was fun. But it was a whole lot better than staying in a house with 52 degree, uh, that was heated to 52 degrees. But anyway, usually uh, pipes, when they freeze, it's the warm water that freezes first. And this was our pipes. I know you're like, what is wrong with your guys' house? Like, you don't have any trim up. This whole thing is disgusting. This is our kitchen sink. As you can see, the hot water's on, but there's nothing coming out. Um, and 
I tell you guys this sometimes, but every year I try to give myself like three, maybe four really cheesy illustrations, like really pastoral, cheesy illustrations. I'm going to use one of those right now to try to make a point, so don't throw stones at me. But earlier this week, we had just the warm water in the kitchen freeze. And we, I actually, we were eventually able to get it back on before the whole thing froze, but the, the sink was getting backed up um, because you can't do dishes without warm water. Um, and it, it got, really, it got up really backed up and it was really frustrating. So what we did was we took this giant pot that we have and we filled it with cold water and then we put it on the stove. You guys have probably been there. And we heated the water on the stove and brought it so, it was, so we had hot water. And then what I would do is uh, I would then scoop out some of that hot water into like another smaller container where I would wash like two or three dishes at a time. And this is another illustration that I'm not getting into, but like you get into like, you put three dishes in that thing and then the water's like black and you got to dump it out and do it all over again. Very quickly, the dirt does that, right? So we would do that. Um, I would just put a little bit of dish soap in there. I would wash the dish a little bit at a time. Um, and then I dumped the water out because uh, dirt makes things dirty. And that's kind of what was going on. The dirt kept making it dirty. But when I got to the pans, my pans were dirty because I had obviously made bacon that morning. And so, and the grease was kind of, I cooked earlier that day and there was bacon and it was grease and it was kind of thick on there. And the pan wouldn't fit into my second container, the, the one that I was transferring things into. And of course, I knew better. But what I did was I just, in the sink, I just poured cold water in the pan and I tried to sponge it out. And it didn't do much, right? All it was doing was it was getting a little bit nasty stuff on the sponge, but most of it was just spreading the grime all around the pan, and it was not coming up at all. So then I said, okay, I'm going to soak this pan in water. Maybe once it comes to room temperature, I'll try again. I got cold water in it, and I uh, filled the pan. I came back a little later, and I sponged it out, and nothing happened. Just the dirt and the grease and the grime just spread around. None of it came off. But the moment that I eventually thought, hey, you know what, I'm smarter than this, and I just scooped out some of the hot water from the big pot, and I put it in the pan, everything instantly wiped right out. It wiped straight clean. It did not take long at all. Because there really, truly is only one thing that will truly clean a pan. It is. It's true. I could spend the entire day, in fact, I spent a lot of the day working on doing it in a thousand different ineffective ways. But until you put that hot water into the pan, that pan is not going to come clean. You can try it. I'm willing to bet money. Not a lot of money, because you probably have like a creative way to make it work with cold water, but I couldn't figure it out. See, in most of our lives, the reality is we recognize things that are a mess. Like, I looked at that thing and I said, this has got to come clean. We can see the mess. We get it. Most of us can tell, you know what, something here needs to get cleaned up. It, it, it's got to get better. Yet the reason that so many people actually struggle to fully accept the gospel of Jesus Christ is because we think that we can clean it up with the tools that we have. We think that we can clean it up with cold water and a sponge or maybe some paper towel. There's this pride of life that's sort of ingrained in all of us that says, you know what, I got myself into this mess, I will get myself out of this mess. 
So we scrub and we scrub and we scrub, but all we're doing is moving around the grease. But what God wants to do is he wants to give us that hot water that will wash it just clean without even having to scrub. Without even doing anything. It will wash it clean without grinding away at it, without toiling over it, without spending the entire day struggling in this thing, just like going in circles, scrubbing it and scrubbing it in circles and having it go nowhere. That's what God wants to do. But until we come to terms with the fact that the cold water is not going to clean the pan, we will never get the pan clean. It's so simple, though. When you just accept it, but it's going to be a never-ending amount of work until you do. And that was my cheesy preacher illustration of the gospel. <laughs> all right, all right, I'm just being dumb, guys. Thank you so much for the applause. You're too kind. Okay, listen, the theme of this book, the theme of the entire book of Romans, the theme of the passage that we're on, we call it the thesis, it is the gospel. This is why this book was written. And you will find, if you look very closely at it, it's very important, it's extremely important that Paul says what he says here, I said this already, in verse 16 and 17, before he gets into what he's going to say in verse 18 to 32, uh, which is all about some list of some crazy stuff, and then he gets into chapter 2, which is all about judgment, and you read this and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? It's the darkest stuff in the entire Bible, and we're getting to it real soon. So be ready for it. But what Paul does is he kind of builds this sandwich in which he gives us the gospel here, right here, the thesis, the gospel. And then he gives us all this stuff that if you don't understand the gospel, you're going to be totally lost when you try to read it. And then when you get to kind of toward the end of chapter, chapter three, he gives us the gospel again. So he sandwiches this entire thing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the middle of it does this whole section that just shows like, man, we're, humanity is just totally lost. Man, everybody's to blame. Everybody gets it wrong. Everybody finds themselves in one way or another on this list. The gospel's still for you. The gospel is still for you whether you find your name on this list or not, and you will. That's essentially his argument throughout the book of Romans. It's the, the gospel is that Jesus died for everyone, for the Jew first, and also the Greek. Now, when he says the Jew first and also to the Greek, he's not saying like, oh, the Jews deserved it first, they deserved it more. He's not saying, well, the Jews are going to get called to heaven first or anything like that. He's literally just stating the facts that the Jews were given the gospel before everyone else. That is just chronologically the way that it happened. The Jews were given this message before the rest of the world. That is how it happened. God made a covenant first with Israel and then Jesus fulfilled that covenant with Israel, but when Jesus fulfilled that covenant, he did it on behalf of the entire world. And that's what Paul's here for. He's like, Paul's on this mission to show you, you know what? This is for Israel, but it's not only for Israel. It's for the Jew. It's for the Gentile, which means the nations. It's for everyone. The word gospel is the Greek word euangelion. As you look at this word, you can see the word evangelism in it, right? You can see evangelism, evangelist, whatever. The word evangelism in English literally just means to share the gospel. That's what it means to be an evangelist. 
Um, but th- this Greek word euangelion literally means good news, or it could also be translated as joy news. And the concept uh, is, it comes from the word messenger. So uh, it's a person who has a message of good news, and a messenger delivers it to its hearer, and it brings its hearer great joy. That is the, that is the concept of the gospel. A euangelios in that day was a messenger who would take, would carry a message to somebody and they hear this message and they'd be like, this is amazing. So typically in, in this culture, it had to do with a lot of times with wars and with battles. It had to do with like, okay, a message to a king saying, hey, the war's over. You guys won or you won this great battle or you held off those troops from attacking. Um, or maybe it's a message to uh, a mom, hey, your son's coming home, the war's over. A, a message to a wife, hey, your husband's coming home, the war is over. Or sometimes it was a decree that went out from Caesar to everyone, and it benefited everyone. So everybody's like super stoked on this message. They're like, that brings me great joy. The moment you hear it, you rejoice. That's the heart of Romans. No matter who you are, No matter what it is that you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter where, no matter what you've done and how it's landed you wherever you are, there is a euangelios at your door and he has amazing, amazing news for you. And this is the news. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, loves you so much that he was willing to come lay his life down for you here in this world. He took the fall for the crimes that you committed, for the crimes that I committed. He paid the debt that you owed. And the work that he accomplished on the cross of Calvary is powerful enough to reach into the most broken places of our world in the most broken places of your heart and to bring restoration and reconciliation to those things. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Now this word everyone is actually a very fascinating word. It's kind of like the word all, right? As in all, like all as in everyone, like Everybody's included? Everybody's included in this? Not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, all, all of us? Not just the people in this church built, all of us? Now, for us today, we need to remember this. And you've heard Don and I both use this phrase before, and we didn't make it up. We heard it somewhere and stole it, but it's amazing. And it's this, the, the church exists for people who are not a part of it yet. We exist for the people who are not in this room yet. And we don't only exist for them so we can get them to be a part of our membership or our body or our community. It's always great when that happens because it's it's always better to move forward in health with more people is more helpful and we can reach more with more. But that's not the purpose of doing it. Now let me explain to you briefly why that really, really matters as we study these words today and especially as we get into what we're about to get into in the next couple weeks. The book of Romans has been wielded like a sword against people by isolating certain parts of it and then using them as weapons to speak against people who don't even claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a very, very big problem. The gospel is good news. Sometimes we've made it not such good news. It's not just good news for you and for me and for the people who are here and now today and the people who come to church. The news is so good that everyone who believes can, and who can grasp onto this 
is a part of this. So our job, the job of the church as Christ's ambassadors, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are people who represent Jesus to the world. Our job as his ambassadors, it is not to make everybody believe. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict people and to cause them to believe. Our job is to demonstrate what Jesus looks like to the world. It's to demonstrate to the world who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us in our lives, and what he can do for them in theirs, and ultimately what he's done for everyone on the cross. That's what this passage is about. And that's why it's absolutely central to this entire book. And if we get this part wrong, or if we downplay it, and we downplay its significance, and instead of emphasizing the gospel, we emphasize the sins and this huge list that we're going to get into, as if those are the main thing, then all people will hear is condemnation, and our words will pierce like swords, and they will cut people, but they will not help people, and they will not lead people to a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. We'll have conversations that leave with nobody any better off. This is the main thing. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's simple, guys. The gospel is simple. You blew it. I blew it. Jesus stepped in. You're going to blow it again. Even after Jesus is in your life, you're going to blow it again. But Jesus still loves you. You deserve death, but Jesus died for you. Now you get to live. You even deserve hell. Jesus paid for that too. But even bigger than that, as we're going to explore in just a minute, when you look at yourself, often, at least if you're like me, you see a sinner. But when God looks at you when you are in Christ, he sees a saint. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it tells me that who I once was, I no longer am. And who he is, that's who I am now. And he didn't just do it for me. And he didn't just do it for you. He did it for your enemies. He did it for the community. He did it for everyone. That's why it's so, power, it's so powerful that Paul says this. He says it's the power of salvation to everyone, to the Jew first and then to the Greek but it's for everyone. Let's look for just a moment at this word salvation. Salvation. So of course today, most of us attribute the word salvation to meaning we're going to heaven when we die. God saves us from our sins so that one day we get to be with him in heaven. Right? And the early writers, Paul and the others, they no doubt had faith that that was going to happen. No doubt. There was no doubt that the disciples or any of the writers believed uh, that Jesus, if you call in the name of Jesus, you'll be saved for eternity. They all believed that. Make that very, very clear. And we believe that. But to all of them, that was an afterthought. And we, even today in this room, as we're sorting through those things of eternity and these things of judgment that we're going to get into next week, we simply have to trust the character of God that he's going to do what he says that he's going to do when it comes to eternity. Because without that, what do we have? What do we know? We have trust in God. We have faith in God that, God, you're going to do what you said. 
And if we don't do that, the problem is we're going to spend our entire lives worrying about something that we cannot make, that will not make a slew of change, not even a little bit of change. And what we do is we'll waste our lives worrying about these things that aren't even the point. What he does in eternity is something that he's going to do, and we don't need to worry about it because he's a good God. But when most of the time when they would talk about salvation, they were not just talking about eternity. It was eternity, but it was deliverance. It was preservation. It was safety. And it was salvation, eternal salvation. The word means to be rescued. It's the word soteria. It means to be rescued. It means that the person that you are today does not need to be the person that you are tomorrow. In this world. It doesn't have to be that person. You don't have to to be the same anymore. It means that the gospel is the power of God to redeem even your life right now. You don't have to live in bondage anymore. You don't have to live tied up to that sin anymore. You can change your life right here and right now. And instead of worrying about if one day you're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell, you can live your life today finding hell and bringing heaven to it. Finding people who are broken and bringing Jesus to it. That's the reason we have salvation. In that day, they would have also viewed it as being rescued or delivered from things like sickness. Like God actually can make you whole and we believe that. They would have viewed it as salvation, yes, from our sins as well, and even, as we're going to find, read about in the next week, even salvation from the wrath of God. Even the wrath of God. As we're going to get into a lot moving forward, it's not something to be fearful of, and it's not something that should make you think that God is evil. When the ancient world would have heard this, This too would have been good news because what it means is that God is going to sort out the world and he's going to make it right because the world was beautiful and it got corrupted and God's going to put the pieces all back together and make the whole thing right again. We're going to get very deep into judgment in a little while, uh, not today, but judgment is a pruning process in the ancient world. The literal comes from the concept of pruning so that you can get rid of the bad to make everything that's still there good. It's the, for the sake of everything, that's what has to happen. It's like the idea is, okay, God gets rid of the bad in order to make the world right. So here on earth, if we have salvation now, what that means is the more we can be transformed now and the more we can live like Jesus now and the more we can bring heaven to earth now and we can do that pruning process now, that's last work that God's going to have to do later. So the more you reflect God here and now is going to make a huge difference in eternity. That's why we do that for people. I love the way that N.T. Wright says this. He says, salvation is a present reality as well as a future hope. Indeed, when this salvation breaks into someone's life, it becomes an event in itself, which they can then look back in the past. Wow, I was saved. They were saved, they are being saved, and they will be saved. Paul says you have to believe it. You have to believe it. Jesus died for you. Jesus already did the hard part. Your job is to believe it. Yet some people find it so incredibly hard to believe it that they never experience it. And they spend their entire lives just sort of scrubbing at that pan and moving around that grease frustrated because nothing is getting any better. Now, 
there's a somewhat tricky line in verse 17 that we're going to dive into now um, because I want to frame something for you that you kind of need to understand the concept and the principle behind this entire uh, book and what Paul's getting at. Um, It says this. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. In the old King James, it says the just shall live by faith. Now, the word for just, or as some translations say, the righteous, uh, is a word we have to explore, and even more so, we have to explore the word, uh, word that's connected to it. Uh, so the word just is the word uh, dekaios. Dikaios. And of course, it's very similar to the word justified, which is the word that we're going to actually look at in just a minute here. Because that's, that's a word Paul uses in Romans 3, and even though we're not on Romans 3 yet, he, he kind of gives hints of it now, and I want us to understand this principle going into this whole rest of the series. Um, Romans 3 is kind of a culminating moment of 1, 2, and 3. Like, you get, like I said, it's a sandwich. You get the gospel, then you get the sins and the craziness and uh, the, the ungodliness, and then you get back at the gospel and you find out, okay, we're justified. But what does that mean? Now, I will say this, in the Bible, there's a lot of really big words um, that explain what Jesus did for me and for you. Uh, this is not the only word, but sometimes this is a word that we don't fully understand kind of what it actually means, right? So, I'm gonna, so just because I say this word means one thing, it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't do other things, if that makes sense. Like, Jesus uh, was the atonement for our sins. He's, he's a, he, he, we're sanctified in Christ. God, Jesus took everything that we are so that we could become who he is. There's all sorts of different ways to describe what the gospel is, okay? A lot of words. But obviously the word justified comes from the word justice, which in Hebrew literally just means the right thing to do. So you get the Hebrew word for justice. It's just, okay, you do the right thing. It's a term that's used in court, where hopefully the results of this trial will make right the thing that was wrong. That's justice, right? Justice is doing what is right. So it would seem, right, a person um, who does justice is the person who does what's right. Now, of of course, we can't always get it right, right? You know that. You're not going to get it right. I'm not going to get it right. The only person that can get it right is Jesus Christ which is what, what Paul shows us in 1, 18 through 32. Next week, we'll get into it. You're not going to get it right. But in English, the word justified means what? Like, think about this word for a second. In English. If, 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 you, if I were to say to you, I think you were justified in doing that. What am I saying? I'm affirming you and the action that you took. I'm vouching for you. Typically, typically, it means something along the lines of, well, that could have been a bad thing, or that seemed like the wrong thing to do, but because of the circumstances, because of the situation, it was the right thing to do. For example, some, in a court of law, they would say, if somebody breaks into your house and they, and they come after your family, but then you kill them, well, it's horrible that you killed them, but you were justified in doing it. That's kind of the way that we, in our English minds, view this word. That's, that's English justification. So to justify yourself would mean you prove your own case, uh, or you show why you were right for doing whatever it is that maybe could be interpreted as wrong. Now, what I'm trying to get at is not that this is justification. I'm saying this is the best that we've done in English with it, but it's actually a lot bigger than this, okay? Now, so the way we typically understand it is basically this. It's it's, okay, you're justifying, it means you're guilty, but the circumstances make you not guilty. That's English justified. So 
most people view justification the way that Paul describes it as, okay, humans are guilty, but because of Jesus, Jesus was guilty on our behalf, right? And that is true, completely true. And from a human perspective in English, that's kind of all we got. But the word justification in Greek is the word dekai-a-o. Dekai-a-o. It's a very slight variation of the word uh, the just or the righteous. And it's actually saying quite a bit more than that. The, what the variation on the Greek word makes it say is it basically says, I justify, or um, it says, I justify, as in God justifies, it's saying, I'm justifying you. But it does not mean I prove, as we would think it does. And it does not even mean I make something. What it actually means is I, con- I account you as something, or I see you as something, or I view you as something. The literally means I declare you righteous. So be just, to be justified literally means God declares that you are righteous. Now, this is what makes this different, right? What the Greek is actually saying is not that God is proving your case. He's not vouching for you. What this particular word means is that God, because of what Jesus did, sees you and treats you as if you are clean. If you're in Christ. If the righteousness of God if, if you have the righteousness of God. He treats you as if you are righteous. He doesn't see you as a sinner. His view of you is that of a saint, of someone who is clean in his eyes. So in God's eyes, God looks at you and he sees God's righteousness. It's not, well, you did this, but I'm gonna clean you up. It's actually, you're clean. Isaiah puts it like this, okay? Isaiah, if you have the little Bible, the the full Bible, it's not in the journal, but it's in 43 verse 25. And what it says is he says, for my sake, for my sake, God's saying, for my sake, I'm going to remember your sins no more. Now, that's not to say that God couldn't remember because God is all knowing. He certainly can remember my sins. He knows. If if God wants to know what I did, God knows what I did. But it says that he chooses not to remember and he does it, get this, for his own sake. He doesn't, it doesn't say he does it for my sake. He does it for his sake. That's backwards to me, right? I'm thinking, okay, I'm the sinner. I'm the one who deserves to die. It would be for my sake that God would forget the things that I've done wrong. Yet Isaiah says, no, actually it's for my sake. It's for God's sake. And this goes against the concept of religion more than you could possibly imagine. And this is how we have to reframe our lives around this concept. Listen. Religion says, I need to do these things so that God will forgive me. I need to work my way to him by living a life that proves he's my Lord. But God wants to forgive you because he loves you so much that he cannot even bear the thought of one of his children being far from him. He can't even bear the thought of remembering what you've done to him. The thought of a child betraying you is just too much. God, for his own sake, forgives us because he wants our salvation even more than we do. And that's what the word means. It means you're clean. It means you are declared to be righteous. When God looks at you, he says, that's a righteous person. He declares the righteousness of God over you. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus because of what Jesus did in your life. That is what it means to be justified. Let me try to help you see this in one more way. Uh, one thing I want to make sure you guys understand, and we, I, think, I think we get this in our church because we've been kind of beating this to the ground for a while, but 
Something to understand about the gospel is the gospel has always been true. The gospel didn't become true when Jesus died. It, it, it was a manifestation of it. It made it very amazing. But like God has always loved the world. When you read this thing about Isaiah, you read about a God who's, who's forgetting your sins for his own sake because of how much he loves the world, how much he loves you, right? He's saying that before Jesus. Uh, John 3.16, right? Jesus hadn't died yet. It says what? For God so loved the world. He loved the world so much. He's up in heaven. He's like, I love them so much. What can I do? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Because he's already loved the world. He always loved it. And he wanted nothing more than reconciliation with you and with me and with all of us. And so he sent Jesus to do that. But the love has always been there. That's why he made the covenants that he did with Israel. People, guys, people are God's greatest creation. And as we're soon going to see as we move forward into the next few weeks, the church is God's biggest idea. But when Paul says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And when he does this, he's quoting Again, something that had been before Jesus, Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.4 is what he quotes. And what it says is, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, real quick, if you're not familiar with the book of Habakkuk, it's actually kind of like, it's very short, but it's kind of written in that same vein of the book of Job, where Habakkuk is like really mad at God, and he's kind of, he's, he's like complaining to God. Uh, and he's a prophet, and he's complaining against God, and he's asking God this question. He's saying, God, how is it that you can move even in the midst of people who are so sinful? How is it that, God, you're going to work through people who are, um, who are you're, all, you're so sinful, they're all sinners? Uh, and basically, even more so, the bigger question was, God, how can you work through Babylon? Because Babylon was oppressing Israel, and God's divine justice was coming through somebody who was more evil than Israel. And so Habakkuk is saying, God, how can you use a nation who's so evil to do your work? Another way to put it would be, God, how can you use people who are so evil to bring justice against people who are less evil? Because Babylon was being used by God to punish Israel. But how can God work through people who are so far from him that are living in this place that's completely absent from God? They're not even trying to invite God in. And they're just sitting there wondering, God, are you going to ever show up? And the kind of the question becomes, God, are you going to act in accordance to your justice to a world that's just gone totally mad? Which God acted according to his justice to a world gone totally mad as his justice met Jesus. And of course, we know in these next sections of Romans he paints this picture, Paul paints this, paints this picture of a humanity that is no less fallen. A humanity that has, in essence, as we're going to see, has really, truly gone mad. No one is righteous on their own accord. And Paul, he uses the conclusion of Habakkuk as his answer. He says, actually, it's the righteous ones are the ones who live by faith. They're the ones who, even when their world is upside down, their eyes stay on Jesus. They're the ones who, even when they're the cause of their world being upside down, 
they remember who Jesus is and who he was to their life so far and they cling to him even when they're at the bottom. Because they're not going to achieve righteousness in and of themselves. Not the Jews, not the Gentiles, not the Greeks, not the barbarians, none of them. Not Israel as they're being destroyed by an even more evil Babylon. See, the language that Paul's kind of pulling from here, it's fascinating because it shows us how God redeems people even when they don't deserve to be redeemed. And he works through people even when they are the least likely candidate to ever be used by God to accomplish a kingdom purpose. But yet the arms of grace extended to all of them. And they will all be made righteous only through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it's very, very easy to begin the Christian walk from faith, right? That's how most of us start. But to see Christians walk through by faith, it's kind of another story. But that's the way that Paul puts it. Our translation says, well, from faith and for faith. And what this is saying is basically this. And I want to try to explain this. I'm almost done. But most people, they come to Jesus when they're on the bottom. They're down here. And honestly, that's the best place to come to him. It's a great place to come with him. When you realize, you know what? All I have is cold water. The grease and the grime is not going anywhere. It's not coming off with these tools that I have. Do something, God. So we let God, like that warm water, just come in and wash us clean. Most of us who have accepted Jesus have accepted him that way, and we're good with that. And we should be. But the problem is, we understand the grace of God as the power to forgive, but we don't necessarily understand fully the, the grace of God as the power for salvation. And that's what Paul says here. He doesn't just say it's the power of God to forgive us. He says, no, it's the power of God for salvation, which means it actually changes us. See, for a lot of Christians, the more we learn about the Bible, the more we learn about Jesus, the more we treat all of it like law. Thinking that every time you screw up, you got to get saved again. Guys, the gospel is so much bigger than all that. At the core of the gospel is the power of salvation. Paul basically defines the gospel in a whole new way. The good news is for everyone. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has the power to reach into the most broken places. And because Jesus is in those places, when God looks at those places, he does not see them broken anymore. When God looks at you, he does not see you broken anymore. He sees Jesus. He remembers it no more for his own sake. But not only that, but soteria, salvation, to be delivered, to be rescued, it means that because Jesus has come into these broken places, we have faith that he has the power to restore those broken places of your life today, which in turn should then lead to you being that type of change in the world. We should be becoming people of justice. We should be people who become part of helping make the world right. But the gospel, the good news, it's received when we acknowledge that we need it. Just come to terms with that, man. Faith in the gospel means that you've got to come to terms with the fact that, you know what? You never, ever have ever been able to live up to that standard. You're never going to be able to live up to that standard. But Jesus died for you anyway. And his blood is so powerful that it will redeem you. 
And that's why it's so important that we understand that it means, justification means to be declared righteous. Now, every time you're faced with an opportunity in your life to go do something unrighteous, what should you remember? Oh, you remember what God declared you as. He said, no, I am declared to be righteous. I am the righteousness of God. You remember, I am a child of God. I am a saint. When God looks at me, he sees somebody that is his child and that he loves. We remember that the God of the universe sees us as his children. He believes in our potential. He sees the best in us and he stands with us when we fall. But for his own sake, he does not remember that. He just keeps on seeing Jesus. That's it. The righteous are the ones who live by faith. The righteous are the ones who live by the righteousness of God, leaning into his righteousness when they know, I don't have that righteousness on my own. And in a life that's truly experienced soteria, salvation, that's truly been rescued, the question should then become, and why would I ever even go back to that? Like, why would I come back here? Why would I ever go back to who I once was? And of course, you're gonna fall sometimes. Please hear this, you're gonna fall sometimes. But the gospel says our sins are not too big for Jesus. And even when we fall, if we're in Christ, again, God doesn't see us as fallen. He looks at us and he sees Jesus. So that phrase, from faith, for faith, might seem a little crazy, a little confusing. But the most basic understanding is this. This thing is all about faith. It's faith in the beginning and it's faith into the end. Faith does not bring you to point A, then abandon you there to your own devices where you now have to figure out what it means to be a Christian and to start following a bunch of rules. Faith will bring you to point A, it'll carry you to point B, carry you to point C and D and E and so on. Or we could say it like this. Go back to the cheesy illustration. The hot water is always running. It doesn't freeze. It's always there, constantly doing that cleansing work on the grossest, grossest dishes of your life. Constantly renewing you as you renew your mind daily and you set your eyes on Jesus. God's righteousness making you righteous every single day. And that's the gospel. For he made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God.